We're going to start this morning in 1 Kings chapter 17. We've been uh, talking about uh, uh, teaching a series that we've entitled God and Miracles. And we've looked at some of the miracles of creation. We've looked at some of the miracles that uh, God did uh, uh, to bring his people out of Egypt during the, uh, the time of the Exodus. We've looked at some of the miracles of the wilderness. We looked at some of the miracles during the rebellion of, um, of Israel against God following the, the taking of the promised land. Today I want to talk to you about the miracles of Elijah. Now, uh, Elijah comes on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. We don't know too much about him, and, and I think that's on purpose. I think the Bible gives us very little information about him because the, the emphasis is not on him. It's on God who uses him. But let me give you some background information about uh, uh, what's going on in Israel at the time that, uh, that Elijah, Elijah comes on the scene. It's been, uh, by the time 1 Kings chapter 17 appears, it's been 58 years since the kingdom divided after Solomon. Ten and a half tribes went with the northern kingdom. Judah and half of another tribe went with the southern kingdom. And in Israel, which was known as the, the name of the, the northern kingdom, there have been seven wicked kings that have reigned over those ten and a half tribes in those 58 years. Now, let me, let me run through them real quickly to let you know who they were. Jeroboam was the first. He set up two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan. He made priests from the lowest of men, not Levites, as God had commanded, and created a feast in the eighth month, which was a, a competition feast uh, competed with the, te- the Feast of Tabernacles so that Israel wouldn't have to go up to Jerusalem. The next guy was Nadab, who the Bible said did evil in the sight of the Lord. The next one was Basha, who murdered Nadab. So he was a real great guy. The next was Eli, who the Bible says was a drunkard and a murderer. The next one was Zimri, which, who was guilty of treason against Israel. The next was Omri, who the Bible says wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all those before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin, wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Finally, the last one, and the one that's in place when Elijah comes on the scene, is Ahab. And here's what the Bible says about him. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidotians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, during, Ahab, uh, during Ahab's rule, uh, his, uh, his wife Jezebel brought the, the worship of Baal into Israel and um, uh, really solidified it. She may not have been the first one to, to introduce Baal worship, but, uh, but she certainly uh, enforced it. And, uh, and as a result, the priests of Baal that she was uh, overseeing uh, took full charge of the religious life of Israel. It was openly declared that Baal lived and Jehovah had ceased to be. In other words, the, the common refrain in Israel was that God is dead. And the Bible furthermore says about Ahab that he made a grove to Baal and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God to, of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hail the Bethite, the Bethelite, Build Jericho. Now, you may remember that when Israel took the promised land, God told Jericho, or God told Joshua, excuse me, when they took the city of Jericho, to curse Jericho and say that nobody would ever rebuild it. Well, this is uh, symbolic. This shows us how little the Word of God held and the law of Moses, what a, a, a small place, well, really no place, that uh, the, the Word of God held for the people of Israel. Because if somebody was willing to do something that God had specifically cursed the person that did, then obviously they're not, uh, the, the idea that God is dead has taken hold. So this is the case, this is the situation, the circumstances of Israel. Spiritual death has overspread everything, 
And it looked like Satan had gained mastery over the nation. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these three years, but according to my word. Or these years, not three years. These years, but according to my word. In other words, he appears out of nowhere. We don't know who he is. We don't know how old he is. The only thing that it says that he was of the inhabitants of Gilead, which may mean he was of the tribe of Dan. I'm sorry, of the tribe of Gad or of the tribe of Manasseh. But we don't even know that for sure. This is, uh, he's one of the people, kind of like Melchizedek, that just appears on the scene and we don't know where he came from. And I, as I said, I think the importance or the significance of that is God picked who he wanted, not because somebody was in line to be used. And God picked who he wanted based on the circumstances and the conditions of Israel. It was the darkest period, religiously, spiritually, it was the darkest period in Israel's history. These were the darkest days. The kings are getting worse and worse and worse. Finally, Ahab takes unto him a wife of the Syrians, literally the Zidonians, but that means of Syria, the enemies of Israel, which is a direct violation of the law of Moses. And it's like, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing what they want to do, and, and, and Israel is getting worse and worse and worse. And Elijah comes on the scene and says, it's not going to rain again. And notice it doesn't just say rain. It says it's not going to rain or dew until I say so. Now, the very fact that, is, that uh, Elijah said what he did as he did is instructive. First of all, he said, as the Lord God of Israel liveth. In other words, that idea that God is dead, forget that, and I'm going to prove it to you. Now, let me tell you who Baal was. Baal, we've, uh, uh, archaeologists have found certain uh, drawings and and uh, I don't know if there's any statues, but there have been some reliefs and different things, so that that we have a pretty good idea of what Baal is supposed to look like. Baal was a statue that was set up. Uh, he had a um, uh, well, it was a it was an ugly thing. I, I don't really even know how to describe it to you, but uh, and and the the appearance doesn't matter. But what does matter is what people thought he was the god of. He had in his right hand a hammer, and that signified thunder and lightning which means he was the god of fire, and it means he was the god of rain. And in his left hand, he had a spear that had vegetation coming up out of the top of it. And what that signified is they looked to Baal to be the one that, that brought uh, produce or um, fruitfulness for their, their crops that they grew. Now, remember in the land of Israel, it, it rains two times a year. It rains, they, one time it's called the early rain, the other time it's called the latter rain. Now, that has a spiritual significance, but it, uh, it has a very literal significance for Israel because if they don't get rain in those two times a year, their crops don't produce. Their ground doesn't grow anything. And it, uh, as God said about uh, the land of the promised land through Moses in Deuteronomy, telling Israel about it before they went in, he said it was a land that flowed with milk and honey and it was watered with the rains of heaven. In other words, it wasn't watered with the Nile River like Egypt was. It, it depended on rain. That's significant of our Christian lives and the source of our strength, our sustenance, everything that we need being dependent on God, that which comes from heaven. It's not like you can go man- manufacture rain. Well, gee, we need rain, so let's go make some. If you need rain and you don't have any, the best you can do is try to bring in irrigation. Well, in Israel, there's nothing to bring it from. There's no place to bring it from. It's totally dependent on the rains of heaven. And so they considered, the people of, uh, of Israel had come to, to, to the place where they considered Baal, the one that, that, uh, that blessed them, not only where their economy was concerned, but where their food source was concerned. And, and Elijah says, I want to prove to you who is the God of rain. 
So as we see, as we did see with the Exodus miracles, remember there were 10 plagues in Egypt, commonly called or commonly spoke of it as 10 plagues in Egypt. Really, it was nine plagues in the death of the firstborn. And each of those nine plagues was a miracle or a judgment against one of uh, Egypt's nine chief gods. They had many more than nine, but there were nine chief gods. And each one of those miracles was a judgment against their God. This is the same thing with Baal. So Elijah said, it's not going to rain or dew. That means there's not going to be any dew on the ground in the mornings like we're accustomed to, at least in certain times of the year. No dew, no moisture of any type until I say so. Verse 2, and the word of the Lord came unto him saying, get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. Now the, um, uh, the significant thing that I want you to see about this, I don't know if you can call this a miracle. Uh, well, let me finish reading the story. So he did, uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. I don't know if that's a miracle or not. It's certainly supernatural. But we think of a miracle as, as divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. I'm not sure, and, and different scholars, different people have classified them in different ways. It doesn't really matter to me one way or the other. It's God working. So whatever you want to call God working is certainly God at work. But he said, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that God didn't tell Elijah what was going to happen after he said there's going to be no rain until I say so. What's Elijah supposed to do during that time? We don't have any information. If it was being written today, I'm sure somebody would record that when God spoke and said, go to the king and say there's not going to be rain or dew until I say so, the next conversation is going to be, well, what about me? Where am I going to be? Where am I supposed to go? The word hide here in in, uh, uh, verse 3, I think it is, is not the same word that's used. There's a couple of different words that are translated hide in the Hebrew. It's not the same word that's used like when Rahab hid the, the two spies in Jericho before they came in to take the promised land. It's not something like you're, you're afraid for fear or something like that. It just means to absent yourself. So in other words, it's saying that when you obey God, it's showing us the example that when you obey God, God will provide for you. Here's God saying to Elijah, there's going to be a curse, and remember the, the curse of disobedience all the way back to Deuteronomy when Moses commanded the children of Israel to take the promised land. If you obey the Lord, then all these blessings will come on you. If you disobey the Lord, all these curses will come upon you. One of those curses is the heaven will turn as brass, and there'll be no rain. So not only is this God showing himself to be the God of the universe, a God that's greater than Baal. Not only is it judgment against who they think is the God that controls rain and, and produce and vegetation and so forth. But it's also a curse of disobedience. Now, let me ask you a question. I don't really expect it's you, to, you to try to apply this to stop worshiping some idol you've got stuck in your closet at home. I'm really not too concerned about that being your issue. If it is, we need to talk. (laughs) But there are other things that we let get in between us and God. Now, we don't like to think of those as idols, but anything that you let consume your attention and your affection other than the, the obedience to God and his word is an idol in your life. 
I don't, I get frustrated when people say, well, people have the idol of TV in their homes. So you shouldn't have TV in your homes. Well, go jump in a lake. I'm going to keep my TV. I can finally afford a big one and I like it. But that doesn't mean people with big screen TVs are clapping. I get it. Okay. Yeah. But that doesn't mean TV should consume your life either. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Wherefore, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience the, the, the race is set before us. See, some things are sin. Worshiping an idol would be sin. I'm talking about a statue of Baal worship and that kind of stuff. But some things are just weights. Some things just hold us back. Now, let me tell you something I found, and not only in my own experience, but also in watching the lives of a countless numbers of other people the devil's real good at advertising he's a master marketer but he can't deliver because even if you get everything that you thought you were going to get by disobeying god running from god and so forth what he doesn't tell you is it won't make you happy so you're going to see later on in this situation ahab the king the wicked king who's the source of the problem anyway is going to wind up blaming the prophet. Well, it's your, pro- it's your fault that it's not raining. Well, Elijah turns that around real quick. He says, it's not my fault it's not raining. It's your fault for worshiping Baal. You're the one that's troubling Israel. And so often that's what happens in our lives. Now, folks, it's important for us to see what God does and how he does it. I, I, these miracles, there are about eight miracles. That people count them in different ways, but there are eight major miracles that Elijah does during his lifetime that are recorded in scripture and that doesn't count the prophecies and the different things like that but i'm talking about bona fide miracles and the significance of those for me the reason that those are important for me is because it seems that the spiritual condition of israel was very much like the spiritual spiritual condition that that either exists or is coming in our day Because here Jezebel is, she set up her 450 prophets of Baal. She's got another 450 prophets of Asherah. That's what the grove is all about. The grove is not necessarily to Baal, but it's another idol set up outside the temple where they worship Baal. And not only has she set up her own prophets and is she trying to control the people through the the prophecies that she directs them to tell and and how she uh, commands them to operate. She's pulling the strings in people's religious life. Folks, you need to understand, when the devil's in power, he tries to control the religion of a nation. I want to let that sink in a little bit. Because if you think we're not living that today, you need to wake up. So that's what she's doing. She's trying to control the the religious life of the country so that it goes the way that she wants it to go so that she can control the people. We're living in a day where, where Christians are about the only group left that you can literally discriminate against with impunity. We're living in a day where Christians are being captured, kidnapped, and beheaded. And the rest of the world sits by and says, oh, isn't that a terrible thing? We're living in a day where Certain groups of Muslims, what some are fighting to call radical Islam, 
I just call it Islam. Because whether you like it or not, the verses that they're operating on are in the Quran. Now, I know I'm smart enough to know that not every Muslim lives by the Quran any more than every Christian lives by the Bible. But the ones that are doing all the beheadings and ISIS and all this other kind of stuff, they are living by the Quran. They're doing exactly what Muhammad told them to do. So these things are going on around the world. It's the same thing that was going on back in uh, almost a thousand years ago. Islam's taking over Christian lands. They're even fighting against their own Muslim brothers, so to speak. Those that won't stand for the same actions based on the Quran that they will. And what does a country, what does our country do? I don't even know how to describe what our country's doing, but it's not good. We hide our head in the sand and try to figure out how to get a Iran a nuclear weapon. Gee, that'll solve the problem. That'll just make the world a better place no matter what. So, folks, you need to realize the things that are going on today are not new things. They're new to us. But as somebody once said, most people's idea of history began when they were born. There's a lot of things that have been done in the earth, and the devil doesn't have anything new. He's doing the same stuff and recycling it over and over and over again. He's just found an environment that's conducive to doing it again. And it'll get worse and worse and worse. The end result is Israel's going to be left out in the cold. I think they figured it out already that they're there now. Much of America hasn't figured that out, it seems which is exactly what the Bible says is the condition of the end before Jesus comes back. So I'm not saying we ought to pray and change these things. I don't think we can pray and change it at all. I think we need to realize the signs of the times. But one of the things that's important to me about these miracles is to show us the miracles of Elijah that we're talking about this morning is to show what does God do when the devil looks like he's in charge. Because God doesn't change. If God did this for Israel, he'll do even more for his church. Are you with me? All right. So God tells tells Elijah, now that you've spoken the word, now that it's not going to rain, God knows how long it's going to be. Elijah doesn't. It turns out to be three years. He says, go to a certain place, a brook. That's not a running river, but a brook, and I'll have ravens come and bring you food. Now, I don't know what you would think about that, but what if God told you in the end days, go to a certain place where there's a trickle of water and I'll have the birds feed you? I think most Christians at the very least would be looking for confirmation. But this signifies something else. A raven is an unclean bird. It's an unclean animal. So anything a raven brings is supposed to be unclean and contrary to the law of Moses. Here's God showing that the law is not for itself, but for the benefit of mankind. Just as when David ate the the bread off the the table of showbread, that was contrary to the law of Moses too, but God didn't get upset about that. Jesus, when questioned about it, said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Elijah knew something about the things of God that many others never did figure out. And that was... God was greater than the commandment of the law. 
He saw the mercy of God. He saw the grace of God even under the law. Well, the time came where the brook dried up, verse 7, because there had been no rain in the land. Uh Uh-oh, what are we going to do now? And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. All right, a rich widow. Some woman has had a bunch of money left to her. I'm going to live in luxury for all the rest of my days. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. I'm sure he thought, that's kind of strange. She should have her servants be doing that, shouldn't she? So she's gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread and in thine hand. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, folks, I want you to understand what her to-do list is. Gather sticks, make a cake, die. That's as far as she sees. And that's as far as she can see because of her resources. And you need to understand this, folks. Your resources are not the limit of what you can do ever. Now, one thing that's interesting about this to me is her, the way that she responds. Zidon is, uh, is close to Syria. So now he's gone to Zarephath. Uh, Elijah has gone to Zarephath, which is in the northern part of the country. Syria is to the north of, uh, of Israel. So he's gone to the northern part of the country. Water doesn't seem to be such a, 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 a terrible thing. The drought is still in effect. But when he says, get me a little, little bit of water, she doesn't say, well, I don't have any water. So apparently there are water sources and there are in the north that are more plentiful than in the southern part where Elijah had come from. But notice her response. Baal is the God of Israel. He's worshipped as the God of Israel. The secondary God is Asherah. Everybody is saying that God is dead. Notice the fall of Israel. The God that brought them out of Egypt with signs and wonders and miracles. The God that brought them into the promised land just 58 years earlier. Well, I'm sorry, he didn't bring them into the promised land. But Israel divided 58 years earlier in Solomon's reign. Solomon was one of the greatest kings of Israel, right behind his, his father David. And it was a time of plenty. It was a time of abundance. In 58 years, Israel has fallen to the place where they don't even know God exists. Solomon is the one that built the temple for God. And in 58 years, look how things have changed. Folks, you've got to evangelize, evangelize every generation. Just because you love God doesn't mean your kids are going to. You need to make sure you tell them about God. And don't leave it to the church and don't leave it to the schools. Don't leave it to somebody else. It's your job. I see so many people that are sending their kids to Christian schools hoping the schools will straighten them out. All you're doing is creating a bad environment for other kids, Christian kids. They're going to find out what the tricks are, of the worldly tricks from your kids. Thanks a lot, by the way. Something is supposed to be done in the home. Something is supposed to learn from us. Not because of our preaching, but because of our life. So Israel's fallen quite a ways in 58 years. But notice what she says. Close to Syria, and Baal is the god of Syria. I mean, Baal worship is big in Syria. That's why Jezebel, when she is, uh, marries Ahab, she brings it with her. 
So you would expect in this northern part of Syria for Baal worship to be even as great or greater perhaps than in other parts of the, of the country. And she says, as the Lord God of Israel or the Lord thy God liveth. Now what causes her to associate Elijah with God? We don't know anything about him. We don't know that he came from school of the prophets. We wouldn't expect there to be a school of the prophets at that point in time. We wouldn't expect that he's come from any religious training academy or any kind of formal setting that would identify him. There's nothing that the Bible tells us about his clothing other than the fact that he wears a mantle that would signify God. Why does she associate God with him? Or is she associating God with her own life? Instead of associating God with him, is she just saying, as the Lord thy God liveth, I don't have anything to feed you. Whatever the case is, she responds with the reference to the God of Israel, not Baal. She doesn't say, as Baal liveth. She says, as the Lord thy God liveth. I don't have anything to give you. I believe that's the reason why God had picked that woman to sustain him. So he tells her what to do. Verse 13, And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me therefore a little case first, and bring it unto me, and after that make it for thee and thy son. Notice what many people would consider to be hard-hearted action on the part of Elijah. Make something for me first. Elijah, didn't you hear what she said? She's only got enough for a little cake for her and her son, and after that they're going to die because then they're out. Now notice the timing of God. God comes when she seems to be at her last cup full of meal, so to speak. He didn't come the next day. He didn't come the day before. He came that day. And God commands the woman through Elijah, through the prophet. At this point, we, we have no record. We have no inkling. We have nothing to tell us that Elijah might have said, well, this is your lucky day because I'm the prophet of God. Oh, good. I was hoping for one of those. We don't have any record that there's any, any other conversation whatsoever. Elijah just says, make something for me first. And then he tells her why. Verse 14 for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Now, folks, this is a picture of the tithe. What do you do in famine? Tithe. But I can't afford it. Yeah, I know. That's why it's important to do it. What if she had said, which is what so much of the church world does, well, I tell you what, Elijah, let's, <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad God's got a promise, and I'm so glad there's a blessing waiting for us. Multiply the, the oil in the meal first. Then I'll give you as much as you want. How many people are living by that principle? Waiting for God to bring the money in so that then we can tithe. Well, Pastor Mike, I just can't afford it. Neither could she. Yeah, but you don't understand. If I don't, if I don't pay my bills, they're going to come get my car. They're going to repossess my house. Look, if she doesn't do what she says, what Elijah told her to do, she's going to die. Now, whatever your situation is, I'm pretty sure it's not that severe. 
And I wish, just from a human standpoint, just from a compassionate standpoint, I wish that it wasn't so tough for people to make the choice. But the reality is, if you don't learn to trust God with your money, you're never going to be able to trust him with anything else in your life. It's the first thing God does, deals with you about. The resources you have. We're the ones that say, God, give me a million dollars and I'll give you a lot of it back. Has God ever spoken to anybody saying, I'm going to give you a million dollars and here's how much I want you to give me? Doesn't work that way. It's always the deal that we're trying to make. God's deals are already set. Bring the tenth of your increase into the storehouse. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. That's Malachi 3.10. And it's as much the word of God as what Elijah told the woman. It's as true, it's as sure, it's as established in heaven as what Elijah told the woman. Now, what is this Canaanite woman? She's not an Israelite. She's a Canaanite. She's, uh, well, her people would be Baal worshipers. We don't know about her. She seems to have respect to God. She seems to have remembered things that Israel has forgotten. What's she going to do? It's up to her at this point. Here's the word that's been given. Here's what God said. Now it's her move. Well, Pastor Mike, I just wish God would meet my needs. Well, have you acted on the word? I, I, I can't afford to tithe. Folks, if you're in that bad of shape, you can't afford not to. Now, I understand that some people get upset with this, and, and, and it doesn't make any difference to me whether you tithe or not. My salary is not based on your tithe. I don't have a personal stake in this other than your well-being. So I'm not looking for a gift. I'm not preaching offerings, give to your pastor. I'm just telling you that God always gives everybody the same test. And the only way to pass the test is to act on what he said. Yeah, but how's it going to work? See, there's that fear. Yeah, but if we do, then what? Then God makes good on his promise. By Friday? Because that's when my bills are due. Maybe not. But he does make good. I see so much of that is in this, uh, so much of the picture of tithing in this woman and this miracle that God does. And God will do a miracle for you if you'll trust him with your resources. But it's your move. He's already spoken. It's your move. So she does. Verse 15, and she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which was spake by Elijah. Now, what this Bible story doesn't tell us is that the, the barrel of meal filled up to the top. She may, may never have gotten any more than a cruise of oil and a handful of meal. But it never ran out. Verse 17, here's the next miracle that takes place in Elijah. Elijah's ministry verse 17 and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman the mistress of the house fell sick and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him in other words that means he died and she said to Elijah what have I to do with thee O thou man of God art thou come unto me to call my sin to repentance and to slay my son notice her first thought was this is God doing it why because God's the miracle working God 
Here's something that's out of the ordinary, whatever sickness it was that her son had. When he's stricken, which is very often the way that the devil operates, you start operating on the word and he'll stir up trouble in another area of your life. But as I quoted Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10 a minute ago, let me do it again. Bring ye all the tithe into the storehouse and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. Now, as we've spoken of this many times, if you've been part of the church for any length of time, you've probably heard me say that blessing that there's not room enough to receive has got to be something more or outside of just finances. Because you're never going to get to a time where your bank calls and saying, I'm sorry, you can't put any more money in your account. The numbers are just too high. We can't count any higher than this. So then what does a blessing that there's not room enough to receive mean? It can't just be dollars and cents. It's got to be blessings outside of the financial realm. She needs a blessing. She needs a miracle, but it's not a financial miracle. She's had one of those. Now she needs a miracle of a different type. Her son is dead. and She needs a different kind of miracle. So Elijah says, Verse 19, he said unto her, Give me your son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up to a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon this widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? I want you to understand something, folks. You've got a greater understanding of God and what God does than Elijah did. And that didn't keep God from using him. We sometimes have the idea that if only if we knew more, then God could use us. You know more than most of the Old Testament prophets, probably every one of the Old Testament prophets now. God didn't have any problem using them. See, there's always an excuse. If I was just better, if I was just stronger, if I was just better educated, if I was just more knowledgeable, folks, there is no excuse. God uses people like you and me. And not the and as a matter of fact, Paul said he uses very people who are the best educated and the strongest and all that other stuff. People that the world looks at and say, "Well, yeah, of course God used them." So Elijah says, "God, have you done this?" Well, let me ask you a question: Did God do this? If He did, then Elijah's working contrary to His will by praying that He come back to life. God going to hear and answer that prayer? Of course not. Yeah, but how do we know, Pastor Mike, that it wasn't the will of God for this son to die so that Elijah could perform the miracle? Well, that would mean God's working both sides of the street, both the killing people and the raising them from the dead. Yet the Bible says God's the same, no variableness, neither shadow of turning, and he never changes, which means he can never play, play both sides of the street in any issue. That's why Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life. That's why Jesus never had to pray about healing anybody. He never had to take a knee and say, Now, Father, is it your will to heal this person? Why? Because sickness is always of the devil and healing is always the will of God. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to receive healing. It's up to them. It's their choice whether to believe the word, choose to receive by faith. But that doesn't mean it's not available to everybody. In the same way that salvation is available to everybody because Jesus died for the sins of the world. Not everybody's going to make it to heaven. The Bible's real clear on that. Well, why not? Does God not want everybody in heaven? Now, the Bible says it's the will of God for all people, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Well, if it's the will of God for everybody to be saved and the will of God for everybody to be healed, then why is everybody not going to get saved and healed? Because they choose not to believe. Yeah, but the sovereignty of God. Folks, God has sovereignly set it up this way. Now, you can argue with it until Jesus comes back, but God has sovereignly set it up this way so that man's will dictates his future. God's will is expressed by what he's done for us in Jesus and what he's revealed to us in his word. Your will is expressed by your choice. Hello. So he cries unto the Lord, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times. I'm sure numerologists would have some significance to three, but I think he just did it till it worked. He stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come unto him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came unto him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber in the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. And notice what she said. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. In other words, the the meal and the oil not failing, that was good. It provided for them, but that opened the door to even greater things for God to show his power and his mercy. Just like he will to you if you'll trust him with your resources. Now, the next one is the big one. It's the one that we all know about, and that's the, the contest on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. I want you to notice the first verse of the, of, the, of the chapter, and then we'll just kind of summarize some of it. It said, and it came to pass after many days. We don't know how that many that is. We don't know how long it's been uh, since uh, he's been to Zarephath. We don't know how long the, the meal and the oil kept multiplying. But we do know that the end of the, this, this story that's about to be told was three years from the time that First uh, Kings 17.1 was spoken. No rain or dew till I say so. So it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Notice that's all we have record of that God said to him. Now we know that he must say something to him other than that because he winds up doing things at the word of the Lord, at what Elijah says is the word of the Lord. But all he says is the, the end result of this is going to bring rain. In other words, I'm going to prove that I'm the God of rain. I've already proved that I'm the God of drought. When Israel disobeys. I've already proved that the curse that I've said would come upon Israel if they disobeyed my word is true. Now I'm going to prove that I'm the God of rain. Not Baal. And we're going to prove it through a contest. So Elijah speaks to the king. He winds up being before the king. And uh, the Bible tells us that there's a hundred prophets that have been hidden away by a man named Obadiah. Two sets of fifty. Two different caves with fifty prophets each. And this uh, is letting us know that they're having to be hidden because Jezebel has killed all the other people of God. Everybody she can find at least. And so he comes to Ahab and he says, meet me at Mount Carmel. Now Mount Carmel is the perfect setting because it's a, it's a, uh, it's a mountainous area. It's the, the border uh, between two different regions of Israel. Uh, it's, uh, it's where the, there was a... Um, uh, um, temple and a grove set up to worship Baal and Asheroth. So he goes to, to, the, uh, to Mount Carmel. And Elijah says in verse 21, 
Elijah came to the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Now, let me ask you a question. If God is supposed to be dead, why are the people struggling between two thoughts? They're not. And until chapter 17 occurred when Elijah said, It won't rain until I say so, everybody had accepted that God was dead. But now Elijah says, It's the God of Israel, as the God of Israel liveth. There shall not be rain or dew until, uh, until I say so. In other words, he has, in the last three years, the idea has been planted in Israel that, wait a minute, maybe God isn't dead because it's working just like this guy that says he's a prophet of God said that it would go. So who's God, Baal or Jehovah? Which one's the real God? We've been taught over the last number of years for, for many all their lives, that Baal was the, the God to worship. But we do remember that our forefathers, Daddy and Granddaddy and some of those others back in our, in our history talked about God and who, how he did miracles and brought us out of Egypt. And after all, there's that Passover thing. There's that Day of Atonement thing that we were always commanded to keep. See, it's still there's the knowledge of the word, even though they're not acting on it. But in the last three years, Elijah, through one act, has changed the spiritual condition of Israel. It's not where God wants it to be, but at least now they're considering, wait a minute, maybe this isn't all about Baal. Maybe this isn't all about Baal being the the God of rain and the God of fire and so forth. So Elijah said, how long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. In other words, Elijah doesn't give up the knowledge of the fact that there are a hundred other people that are being kept in a cave by Obadiah. He just says, I'm all that's left. He protects her secret. So then he calls the contest to order. He says, get these 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. There's 850 false prophets now that are gathered together at Mount Carmel. He said, get them together. And he said, let the God that is really the, the, the true God answer by fire and then we'll serve him. And I'll let you guys go first. You offer your offering unto him. You put your uh, sacrifice on the altar and do whatever you do to Baal. And if he answers by fire, then we'll know he's the real God. And then after you're done, I'll do it with God. And if God answers by fire, then we'll know that he's God. And whoever it is that answers by fire, he'll be the God of Israel. So he lets the prophets of Baal go first. And boy, they go through their routine. They start crying. They start hollering aloud and so forth. There's some things that Elijah says that I need to make sure to, uh, uh, to explain. Verse 26 says, They took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from the morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure he sleeps and must be awakened. Now, what you need to understand, folks, is that those were the reasons that the prophets of Baal would sometimes give when they asked Baal for stuff and he didn't come through. So when he mocks them, he's using their own words. See, sometimes the prophets of Baal would, would pronounce something at Jezebel's direction, in many cases, I'm sure. They'd prophesy something was going to happen and it wouldn't happen. They'd say, well, we caught Baal on a journey. He was away from home. So that's why it did work. But if it hadn't been for that, it would have worked just the way we said. And so Elijah's making fun of him. He says, well, go through your routine. Cry louder. Because maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. 
So he says, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey. Or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. Now, what's, not, uh, what's interesting about this is verse 28 says, they do what he said. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. Folks, the devil will make you do stupid stuff. Like I said, he's good at promising, but he's poor on delivering. And it came to pass when midday was passed and they prophesied till the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. There was neither voice nor any way, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. So finally Elijah said, all right, this has gone on all day long. Now we're done. And so he does some things. One of the things that's interesting is it says he rebuilds the altar. Notice verse 31. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Why is he talking Jacob? Whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. Why does he call them the tribes of Jacob? Because Jacob stands for a deceiver and supplanter. And that's the condition of Israel at the time of the sacrifice. At the time of this contest, Israel is Jacob. But he's trying to get them back to Israel. Now, the name Jacob means deceiver. It means supplanter, like I said. But the name Israel means God fights. Now, what does that mean? That means you've got to either fight for you if you obey him or he'll fight against you if you disobey him. But at the time of this contest, Israel is Jacob, not Israel. You understand how I mean that, I trust. So he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would t- contain two measures of seed. He put wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now you need to realize, folks, that water is the most precious commodity there is in Israel. However, there are cisterns at Mount Carmel. The reason there, there are cisterns is because they kept the temple of Baal supplied. They would water the groves of Asherah. The people are dying of thirst. There's no water to be had in all of Israel, but they're giving it to these false gods. They're providing it for these false gods. Now, something else you need to take into account. I think a lot of times we read Bible stories and we're kind of in a vacuum when we do. We think of a three-year drought and, and, oh, wow, that'd be tough. But, folks, imagine a three-year drought on which the whole economy depends. In other words, imagine going three years without a paycheck. Or if that's not the entirety of their economy, imagine three years where your paycheck's cut in half. Maybe this next presidential election we can elect Hillary and she can show us what that's like. <laughs> but put yourself in that position. What would you do with, that three, with three years of no paycheck? What would your financial situation be? Or just your finances cut in half? That's the condition that's going on. You may remember the story in, in, uh, in Genesis about Joseph and about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. After seven years of famine, everybody in, the, in that part of the world is dying. They're having to crawl to Egypt looking for some kind of food because the whole of the economies are torn, into, torn to shreds. And that was after seven years of plenty. Well, this isn't seven. This is only three years. But you can well understand that the economy of the world... Uh, the economy of Israel is in sad shape. So these people are not just being affected spiritually, they're being affected in every area of their lives. I think sometimes we just put spiritual blinders on when we read these stories. But these are real stories and real people in real situations. 
So he calls for water. And this water was, these four barrels were filled with water. And he said, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And they did it. And so he said, do it the second time. And they did it. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And it tells us how much there was. The water ran round about the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now, verse 36 is what I want you to see. Baal's prophets have been jumping up and down all day long, crying, screaming, doing all kinds of stupid things, cutting themselves with stones and, and so forth. And Elijah says, here's my prayer. It came to pass at the time of offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah and the prophet, Elijah the prophet, came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. See, he's trying to turn them from Jacob, the deceiver, the unfaithful to Israel, the one for whom God fights. Let it be known this day, three things. Number one, that you are God in Israel. Number two, that I am your servant. And number three, that I have done all these things at your word. Now, we have no record of where God told him to do this. But Elijah says that he did. So somewhere along the way, without a recording of what it is, we're just told the story. And Elijah said, show them, Lord, three things, that you're the God in Israel, that I'm your servant, and that I've done these things at your word. Folks, you need to memorize that prayer. That's a great prayer to pray. Brother Hagin used to say, don't see how long you can pray, see how short you can pray. This is a good prayer for that. Show, Lord, that you're the God in Israel, that I'm your servant or child in our case, and that I've done these things at your word. Isn't it interesting that Elijah didn't have to go through some kind of long, drawn-out prayer to get God to move? You know why? Because he was acting in obedience to what God said. Anytime you're acting in obedience to what God said in his word, it doesn't take some long discussion to talk God into keeping his word. The fact that he revealed his word to you shows his will and his willingness to do what the word says. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And remember that the, the test is the God that answers by fire. They considered Baal to be the God of rain and the God of fire and the God of crops and so forth. Turn their heart back to you. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, folks, let me, let me explain something to you. Um, the Bible doesn't make a big deal of something that if we saw today, we would think is a real big deal. And that is, it was a common thing for the fire of God to fall upon the sacrifice in Israel. It happened on the Day of Atonement. It was part of the pillar of fire that was on the tabernacle in the wilderness. Because when the, the, the offering, not every offering, but when the Day of Atonement offerings and the big things were made, then the fire of, of God would fall, and that was a sign to all of Israel, especially in the wilderness when they were camped around about and they were all looking toward the tent and they could see the, the uh, pillar of fire or, or the pillar of cloud, depending on day or night. And, uh, and when they saw that the sacrifice was offered, if there was fire that fell from heaven, that showed them, that was proof to them that God had accepted their sacrifice. Fire is known as a purification means or method. And so it showed, it was a symbol, that, that um, uh, the sins of Israel had been purified through the action of the sacrifice. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost where it says, cloven tongues of fire sat upon each of them. Now fire is falling from heaven. On, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, fire is falling from heaven not on the sacrifice but on you, people. 
showing that we're the sacrifice, showing that Jesus has shed his blood, showing that the, the, the change has been made once and for all. The eternal sacrifice has been made by Jesus himself. That's what the cloven tongues of fire is all about. So many times people say, well, why don't we see the cloven tongues of fire now? Because that's not, we're not of Israel. It could very easily happen in Israel again. It happened over and over and over again. It was a common occurrence, at least an annual occurrence in Israel when they would make these sacrifices. So now, assuming there is anybody that remembers anything about the history of Israel and their their heritage and so forth, when the fire falls, not only is it a contest between Baal and God, showing that God is the true God, not Baal. He's the God's the one that controls fire and controls nature and controls the world or the elements thereof, and not Baal. But it's also a symbol showing that the sins of Israel have been covered so that they can come back into God's grace. The fire fell. It didn't just burn up the sacrifice, which was, which was the normal occurrence. You understand what I mean by normal occurrence? But it consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. In other words, it vaporized everything. There's no question whether this was just an accidental lightning strike or if it was God's intent to show, I am God. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. I love that. The Lord, he is the God. In other words, forget this Baal stuff. So what does Elijah do? Elijah has these 800 people, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asheroth, and he he brings them down to a certain valley and kills everybody themselves. Kills everybody himself. The Bible says he slew them himself. Now, I don't know if that means he did the whole thing. Killing, swinging a sword 850 times would be kind of tough. But he sure was in charge of it. I wonder what God's going to do with his enemies in the last days. Folks, this is why, and this is just my opinion. You judge it for yourself because there's a lot of different interpretations. But when the Bible talks about in the last days... Literally talks about the first day, what I believe is the first day of the tribulation. When the war in Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place, and this is after the church is gone, it says that when God defends Israel in one day, Israel standing alone, standing by themselves, nobody to stand with them, meaning America. When Israel is defended by God and and delivered in one day, one 24-hour period of time, it talks about the coalitions of armies. And these armies are Russia and, and, and every other nation that's listed uh, on the list that we that we know who they are is a Muslim nation. And it says that God rains fire down upon them. It says it rain, he rains hail down upon them. It says that God supernaturally delivers Israel. It tells about the destruction of the armies that come against them through the, the north pass of Syria and so forth. And it tells us that only a sixth part of them are left. Now, a sixth part of what? A sixth part is about 17%. 17% of what is left? It already says that God defeats the armies. It already says that God destroys the armies that come down. So the sixth part, the 17% of what is left? Now, this is my opinion. Not everybody that agrees with this. But when we get to heaven, they'll see. What is the sixth part or 17% left of the countries themselves? It's the only thing that makes sense to me. It's 
or let me turn it around, 83% of the countries, Russia, Iran, Iraq, um, the Libya, Egypt. No, Egypt's not on the list. Well, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, the, the countries that are on the list, they're all Muslim countries. Most of them are North African countries. Some of them are European countries and so forth that are turning towards Sharia law. If 83% of those countries are wiped out, what happens to Islam worldwide in one day? Who's going to be standing up and saying, Muhammad the prophet and Allah? You're going to have a lot of people saying, we don't understand this at all. Now, is that not consistent with what God did in the Old Testament to show us? how he dealt with his enemies in times of spiritual dearth and spiritual drought, not only natural drought, but spiritual drought. Well, if that's what God did in the Old Testament, why would we think God would do something different in the last days? I don't believe he will. Well, you know the rest of the story. Elijah then gets word from Jezebel that she's going to kill him the next day because he's he's killed all her prophets. So he goes running up into the mountains. He runs up into Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is the mountain where um, um, God had revealed himself in the beginning to Moses and where he gave the law to the children of Israel. And so this Mount Horeb is known for the fire and the the earthquakes and the thunderings and all that kind of stuff. You remember when Israel was uh, camped around the bottom of of the mountain. Elijah goes up there and he has a pity party. James 5 says that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he's subject to the same emotional failures as you and me. This is one of them. And it doesn't keep God from using him. God knew who he was before he had one and after he had one. This did not disqualify him. But he runs up into the mountain and he climbs up into a a little rock and a little hole in the wall. Puts his head between his knees and starts saying, oh, woe is me. I'm the only one that's left. Now, Lord, just kill me. Well, we sometimes say jokingly, but it's true. If Elijah really wanted to die, all he had to do is stay where Jezebel was and she would have taken care of that for him. He didn't want to die any more than you and I wanted to die when we said, oh, Lord, just let us come home. He's just feeling sorry for himself. And the Bible talks about some miracles that take place before Elijah that are instructive for us. And that is while he's there, God speaks to him and says, what are you doing here? That's when Elijah says, I'm the only one that's left. Now just take my life. God reveals certain things to him. He says, you're not the only one left. He said, I've got 7,000 people in Israel that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Now, that's a word of knowledge. How would he know that other than God revealing it to him? It's a supernatural occurrence. And then it says that God fed them, fed him. An angel showed up and fed him twice. That's a miraculous occurrence too. But it's not something that Elijah did. It's just something that God did for Elijah to take care of him. God will go to great lengths when you act on his word and are obedient to what he tells you to do. Then it says that God called Elijah out. Elijah stood before the Lord and there was a a wind that came that broke rocks. I don't know how strong a wind has to be to break rock. But that's what it says. And after that it says there was a great earthquake so that the whole mountain shook. God's got something about this mountain. He did that with Moses when he was up there and now he's doing it with Elijah. There's something about that mountain with God. So now the earthquake takes place. And then the third thing that happens is there's a great fire that burned rocks too, melted rocks too. 
And in each case it says, but God was not in the wind. It says God was not in the earthquake and God was not in the fire. Now, folks, that's figuratively speaking. I'm pretty sure God was in the wind. I'm pretty sure God was in or behind the earthquake and behind the fire. But the important thing that it's trying to get across to us is that's not what God spoke to him through. God didn't speak to him through the wind. In other words, God doesn't speak to us through the miraculous things. It says after the wind and after the earthquake and after the fire, there was a still small voice. And that still small voice, which is a type of the inward witness. It's an Old Testament type of what belongs to every one of us as believers. Romans eight fourteen. for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. If you're going to want to know what the voice of God is in your life, you're going to have to learn to follow the inward witness. That doesn't come easily. That takes effort. And so many Christians, in my opinion, every Christian that's out there saying, well, you just never know what God wants to to do, are people that have never developed a a sensitivity to the inward witness. Because you develop a sensitivity to the inward witness, and you know full-time what God wants to do. Doesn't mean God speaks to you 24 hours a day, but you'll know. And the things that you don't know, all you have to do is ask, and he'll witness to your heart what it is. It's his means, the primary means of, of communicating with mankind. So at the end of this, God finally speaks to him, gets him back on track. Elijah, um, uh, Elijah is then told several things. He said, go anoint the next king of Syria. Now, I've never been able to get a, a legitimate explanation, a worthwhile explanation for why God would have a prophet of Israel anoint the next king of Syria. But he says, go anoint Jehu as the, the, uh, the next king of Syria. And he says, go anoint Elisha to be the next prophet in your place. That brings us to the last three miracles, and I'll cover these real quick. I see the time is running out on us. But the last three miracles over in first, in Second Kings chapter 1. It tells us that the Moabites rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, which Elijah prophesied, by the way. And Ahaziah, is that how you say his name? I don't know. Why am I asking you? You don't know either. (laughs) And some king fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria, and he was sick. Apparently this, uh, this fall had created some kind of infection or whatever, and he wanted to know if he was going to die. So he sends his servants to um, uh, to find one of the prophets of Baal. Go find out from Baal if I'm going to die. And God speaks to Elijah and he says, intercept these people and say, why in the world are you going to Baal? Don't you remember what happened in chapter 18 of 1 Kings? Don't you remember what happened on, on Mount Carmel? What are you looking to Baal for? And so he tells the king's servants, he said, the king's going to die. So the king's servants go back to the king and the king says, who told you this? And they explain who it was and he says, that's got to be Elijah. So then he sends out soldiers. He sends out a captain of a, of a regiment of 50 people. And he says, go bring Elijah to me. I want to talk to him. So Elijah's sitting up in the, in the hillside. And this captain of the army comes to the bottom of the hill. And he hollers up to Elijah. And he says, the king wants to see you. Oh, man of God, you come down here. You do what the king tells you to do. And Elijah said, if I am a man of God, if I am a prophet of God, then let fire fall from heaven and consume you and your 50 people. Probably not the response they were hoping for. So that's what happened. Fire falls again. Why? Because it's a judgment against the people that are still worshiping Baal. It's God showing, what's this Baal stuff? 
So 51 people, the captain and 50 of his soldiers, or all of his 50 soldiers, are instantly fried. Word gets back to the king, so he's, he does whatever king would do. He sends out another captain and 50 people. This next guy is probably thinking, well, whatever the first guy did, he really messed up some way or another, but I'm not going to mess up. So he stands down, down at the bottom of the hill, and he says, oh, thou man of God, the king wants to see you. Get yourself down here. Well, I just thinking we've done this once before. If I am a man of God, then let fire fall from heaven and consume you and your 50. And that's what happens. So in a short period of time, we don't know how long all this took, but in a short period of time, Elijah's cooked 102 people. Hadn't even changed spots. Finally, word gets back to the king. The king sends out a third, third people, third group, captain and 50. I guess the king would have kept going until he ran out of soldiers. I'm, I'm really not sure which was a real possibility. So this king, or this captain comes to the bottom of the hill, falls on his face and says, oh, thou man of God, you're the real deal. Let my life and the lives of my soldiers be precious in your sight. Don't cook us like you did the others. And the Lord speaks to Elijah and says, you can go with him. So he does. He goes to the king, tells the king what he's, that he's going to die and, and so forth. Those are the last, uh, the, the two of the last three miracles of, of Elijah. The third one is in chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2, where he crosses the Jordan River and is caught up into heaven. Now, the miracle here has to do with the Jordan River. The Jordan River always signifies a barrier between life and death in some way or another. In Scripture, the, the Jordan River always signifies this barrier. I, I, the, most theologians, most uh, commentators will say it signifies death itself, but that's not always the case in my thinking. For example, it didn't signify death when the, the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. It signified the end of an old life and the beginning of a new life. Same thing was true when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. It signified the end of an old life and the, at the beginning of a new life, a new life where he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to do the work of God. Now, it didn't signify the end of anything because of sin because he didn't have any sin before he was baptized. But it signified the beginning, a new beginning. For Elijah, it signified the end of his earthly life and the beginning of his life in heaven. So it says they came to the Jordan River. This is verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither. Now, hither and thither is, is a little hard for us to, to interpret. It says, so they went, the two went over on dry ground. He, Elijah is trying to get rid of Elisha. He's trying to be alone on this thing. And Elijah, uh, or Elisha, excuse me, uh, knows that this is the day that uh, uh, Elijah is going to heaven. And he's not the only one because by this time, Israel has turned back to the Lord, and now there's a school of the prophets. Elijah has established the school of the prophets, and these prophets, these young prophets in training, recognize that this is Elijah's day to go home to be with the Lord. And Elisha knows it too, and Elisha will not be deterred. He will not be turned away. So where nobody else is willing to go with Elijah, when he crosses the Jordan River, Elisha refuses to, to, to turn back. And so when it says he took his mantle, this was the coat that he wore, sheepskin or, or uh, some kind of animal skin type thing, I guess it was, and he starts hitting the waters, the, the, the interpretation is, is one of two things. It's that he st- struck the waters and it opened, up for them, opened a pathway for them to walk across, or it means he struck the water again and again, and everywhere that he struck the water, the water was removed. We don't know exactly which way it is, 
many, uh, uh, well, I started to say most commentators will say that it was striking it step by step, but not everybody agrees with that. So you, you decide for yourself. But the important thing is that it was a miraculous event. And it was enough of a miraculous event so that it covered both of them, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah finally gets to the other side and says to Elisha, what are you still with me for? Why won't you turn around and go back? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of what you've got. Now, this is not what it means. But it's interesting because no matter how you count, whether you count the prophecies of Elijah and the prophecies of Elisha, or, or don't count those and just look at the miracles themselves, divine intervention, miracles type things. Elisha did exactly twice as many as Elijah. Exactly. But a double portion means I want it to carry on through me. It's, it's kind of the, well, you remember the double portion goes to the eldest son as far as inheritance is concerned. Well, that doesn't mean that the, that the double portion person is the only one that's loved it doesn't mean he's the only one that has an inheritance it just means i want the inheritance from you and the inheritance that elisha is looking for is the anointing of god now you remember the story how that elijah said uh, answered elisha and says well you've asked for a hard thing and you need to consider that it's not a hard thing for god it's going to be a hard thing for elisha folks following god sometimes hard you might as well just set yourself to understand that to begin with a lot of times people start stepping out on the word and then they come back and they say well i never knew it was going to be this hard well you need to prepare yourself up front it's going to be hard you're going to fight the devil in a way that you've never fought before when you step out on the word and every time you continue to step out further and further on the word or in other areas of your life you're going to find resistance from the enemy if it was easy everybody would do it so you better set yourself and realize it's not going to be comfortable there are going to be inconveniences. There are going to be things that you wish had turned, to, turned out a different way. And the devil's always going to be there on your shoulder saying, well, if you hadn't listened to God, it would be easier. And he might be right in some ways. Because there's no question if the devil's already got you in disobedience or he's got you where you're not yielding to the things of God, what does he care? He doesn't want to rock the boat. But the end of that road is dissatisfaction. Always. There's only one way to be happy in life, and that's to obey God. It's a hard way, and it's hard for a reason. It's hard because it prepares you. It develops character so that your character can withstand the blessings that God wants you to have. Because blessings, you, you know as well as I do, just from a natural standpoint, if somebody rich just gives their stuff to their kids, their kids wind up turning into the devil themselves. Their lives just get destroyed. You see that a lot of times with lottery winners. Most lottery winners are broke within a short period of time after winning millions of dollars and their lives are in shambles. Why? Because they don't have the character to withstand the money that they receive. Are you with me? The difficulties in the Christian life are to develop the character to withstand the blessings God wants you to have. So, Elijah says to Elisha, but if you're with me and if you see me when I am caught up into heaven, then you can have the double portion. All of a sudden, the sky splits open and the chariots of God come down. The chariot of fire comes down, driven by the angel himself. Picks up Elijah. Elijah takes off into heaven. Only two people in the Bible are spoken of that died without a, uh, that went to heaven without a natural death. One is Enoch. The Bible says he walked with God and he was not. And the other was Elijah. He was caught up into heaven in a whirlwind. 
that may have something to do with God's plan for, the, for, for these two as the two witnesses in the end, but not everybody agrees with that. Could be, could, maybe, maybe not. I'm not going to be here then, so I really don't care. I'll be watching from heaven, and whoever it is, they'll do just a bang-up job. <laughs> but the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and these two men didn't die. So I'm thinking that since God doesn't do anything by accident, there's got to be a reason for that. But maybe that's just me. Elisha picks up that mantle and duplicates the very last miracle of Elijah in going back over the Jordan River. Now, folks, as I said, the significant thing, the thing I want you to get on this is very simple. We are living in a day that in many ways rivals Israel's days in the time of Elisha, Elijah. Because men are getting worse and worse. It is so open. It is so blatant. The attack against Christianity like never before. At least never in my lifetime. And nobody seems to be. be, Well. One of the things that the Bible talks about men being worse and worse. Is that it says they have a form of godliness. But they deny the power thereof. You got a lot of people in public office that are claiming to be Christians that their life sure doesn't show it. They're showing more sympathy and tolerance toward religions that are trying to kill Christians than Christianity should be expected to show. Does that mean anything? Well, it does if you look at the spiritual signs of the times. What are we to learn from this? That God is the God of the creation. And God will show himself strong upon his enemies. Now, what does this mean? I mean, bottom line, what does this mean? Let me, let me close with this. And I, I know I've used this, these scriptures a lot as far as the, the end times are concerned, but I, I don't think you can come up with any better. Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, it says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. That desire of all nations is the return of Jesus. Paul said the earth is groaning and travailing, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. So that's the shaking of the nations and uh, the desire of the nations. So it says, God said, I will shake all nations. The devil's trying to shake things up, but the time's coming when God will shake things. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. See, God shakes things for the purpose of filling the, 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 the church with the glory of God. He said, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. That's verse 8. Now, whatever you think about silver and gold and the prosperity message or whatever, uh, that's not our topic this morning. I know a lot of people think that's the most evil thing that's ever come to the body of Christ, or at least so they've written. But whatever you think about it, God attaches silver and gold with glory. You could give your idea on that, and I could give mine, and I guess we'll get to the end and find out for sure. But regardless of what you or I may think about it, God attaches those two things together. He attaches silver and gold together with his glory filling the church. I want to let that sink in a little bit. See, the people that are preaching against prosperity and preaching that God's not uh, the, the cosmic bellhop in the sky or whatever stupid phrase they use to define what they think things are. I don't ever hear them looking over here. I don't ever hear him saying, wait a minute, what about God said, I'll fill this house with glory and the silver and gold is mine. 
Verse 9, the glory of this latter house, that's got to be the church. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Some, some uh, well, it's been months ago now. The Lord really drew my attention to that last phrase, and in this place will I give peace. I'd looked at the rest of it. I'd looked at the glory of the latter house being greater than of the former. I'd looked at the, uh, the shaking of the nations, the desire of the nations, the silver and gold. I looked at almost every part of that except the last phrase. And in this place I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And it occurred to me that if the world is being shaken and everything that can be shaken is being shaken, then the only place of peace there's going to be is the church. And ever since then, that seems to me to be the greatest blessing of all. And in this place, implying no other place, will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Folks, God's still in the miracle working business. He wants to show himself the God of the creation. He wants to show himself as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ as much as he ever did against Baal or Asheroth or any of the Dagon or any of the gods of Egypt or any of, any of anybody else's other gods. He never changes. And I believe these last days are going to be filled with days of glory. I believe they're going to be filled with days of healing. I believe they're going to be filled with miracles. Not just healing miracles, but miracles of every type. Material things, resources, multiplication miracles. I think God's going to do things so that everybody that has a chance, everybody that's interested to see, can look and say, only God did that. I believe the glory of the last day church is going to be a glory that God doesn't share with people. But that he does it in such, which may mean he doesn't use name, big name people. That'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? Be kind of nice for the church not to be looking at somebody as the, the, the receiver or the holder of the power of God. But rather look at the church as a whole and say, wow, God is in those people. Those are days that are coming. I believe we've already entered into them. I believe those days have begun. So I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to, to, to clear out everything in your life that stands between you and complete obedience to God. I want to challenge you to put away whatever fear keeps you from acting on the word of God that you know. Because whether you know it or not, those things are just as important in your life and just as big a hindrance in your life as a, a, a statue of Baal was in theirs we don't think of it in those terms but it's the truth let God be God in your life let Jesus be your Lord and not just your Savior amen for these are the days of miracles these are the days of miracles let's pray Father thank you so much for your word thank you that it's true thank you that we have the privilege to stand fast upon your truth Thank you, Lord, that the Word of God is truth. It doesn't contain truth. It is the truth. And no matter what anybody else thinks, no matter what circumstance speaks to the contrary, the truth always bears out. Thank you, Father, for the promises of provision that belong to us just as much as they did to Elijah or even the widow woman that sustained him. Thank you for financial miracles, if necessary, to get us through these last days. Thank you, Father, for healing miracles. To show that you are the most high God. Father we pray. That in these last days. You would raise up prophets. 
to speak to kings and the nations even as in the days of old. That you would work signs and wonders and miracles that put some of the Old Testament stories to shame for we believe you've saved your best work till the last. Father, we welcome the shaking of all nations so that the desire of all nations shall come. We welcome, Father, the moving of the Holy Ghost, the early and the latter rain, which signifies the moving of the Holy Ghost that brings about the precious fruit of the earth. For that is the only thing that the Bible says Jesus is waiting to receive. Thank you, Lord, that as the, church, as the world, men in the world get worse and worse, the church shall burn brighter and brighter in greater and greater glory so that all the world will know that the church is the place of peace. We ask these things, Father, even as Elijah did, show that you're the one true God that we are your servants, and that we've done these things at your word. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen.